Hello, hello, dear audience. Hello, my friends. I am Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. And I know all of you have only one thing on your mind. Does Peter have his ginger tea? Oh, yes, I do. And I am ready to do this show. In case you want to call sometime uh, in the second part of this uh, show regarding the subject we are discussing, uh, the number here to call is 888-874-4888. Again, 888-874-4888. And if you wish to write to me, uh, my email address is drpeterresnik at gmail.com, D-R-P-E-T-E-R-R-E-Z-N-I-K at gmail.com. I have another email from Ricardo. You remember I was speaking about him and answering his question last week. He thanked me for answering his questions and asked me another question. Could you go further into accounts of past life regressions? I have only heard a couple of examples on past show. Well, <clears throat> frankly, I don't remember even what stories uh, uh, I told you. I had so many experiences with past life regression, but that's not what I do. I do it only if it's absolutely necessary, which means if we cannot, if a person uh, experience some trauma, uh, there is a persistent symptom that he displays or she displays, and we cannot uh, trace the trauma to some experience that they had. In this life, we do past life regression, but there is a person who specializes in past life regressions. That's, from what I know, that's all he does. And it's a psychiatrist from Yale University. Brian Weiss, uh, he wrote many years ago, he wrote this wonderful book, Many Lives, Many Masters. I believe he wrote it in 1988. Then he wrote a book, Only Love is Real. Some 10 years later, he wrote that book. And lately, he wrote a book, Mirror of Time, Using Regression for Physical, Emotional, and Spiritual Healing. I think he wrote it in 2020. So uh, if you would like to hear many or to read of many stories of past life, I would recommend that you read Brian Weiss. And if you want to go further investigating the use of hypnosis for past lives, uh, there is actually a, a man, I, I think he died, I read recently, he died already. His name was Michael Newton, PhD. He actually... Uh, explored something else. He explored life between lives. He actually has the book by the name, by the title, like Life Between Lives. And he uh, does very, uh, did very interesting uh, sessions where he would trace one's consciousness to that experience with, that a person has on the other side, that is in the, in the pool of consciousness, where a person makes decisions when and how to incarnate and then what family or what body a person is to incarnate again. That's very a very interesting um, experience to go through. I've never been through it and I ha actually have never done uh, 
life between life regression. Uh, and I don't know how many therapists um, do this process. I know Michael Newton did. So just if you're interested, read his book. It's quite interesting. And now a little show and tell before we go to the main subject of our show. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, you know, the famous actor, one of my fav most uh, favorite actors, made a free interpretation of a poem written by Mario de Andreas. Here's what he wrote. I know that I have less to live than I have lived. I feel like a child who was given a box of chocolates. He enjoys eating it. And when he sees that there is not too much left, he starts eating the chocolates with a special taste. I have no time for endless lectures and public laws. Nothing will change. And there is no desire to argue with fools who do not act according to their age. And there is no time to battle the gray. I don't attend meetings where egos are inflated and I cannot stand manipulators. I'm disturbed by envious people who try to vilify the most capable and grab their positions, talents, and achievements. I have too little time to discuss headlines. My soul is in a hurry. Too few candles left in the box, candies left in the box. I'm interested in human people, people who laugh at their mistakes. Those who are successful, who understand their calling and don't hide from responsibility, who defend human dignity and want to be on the side of truth, justice, righteousness. This is what I'm living for. I want to surround myself with people who know how to touch the hearts of others, who though through the blows of fate, were able to rise and maintain the softness of the soul. Yes, I hustle. I hustle to live with the intensity that only maturity can give. I will eat all the candies I have left. I will taste better than the ones which are left to eat. My goal is to reach the end of in harmony with myself my loved ones, and my consciousness. I thought I had two lives, but it turned out to be only one. And it needs to be lived with dignity. And that's, that's the poem. I loved it. Sorry, I didn't read it perfectly, uh, but the, uh, the, the text is not very clear here. Anyway, um, some, some words to think about. But now we'll go into the subject of stinginess. Remember, we are still on the fifth pillar uh, out of the six pillars of well-being. And the fifth pillar is your personal attitudes, conscious attitudes, beliefs, and character traits. And we already covered 21 we only have two left, and I hope to finish them today. Stinginess, 
and wastefulness. So stinginess, we spoke about a similar subject a while ago, maybe last year, we spoke about greed. And that's the desire for more, better, different. Uh, but stinginess is something different. Uh, it's holding on to what you have, being afraid to share. It's interesting, which just came to my mind. You know, an Israeli mother, when her daughter goes for first date, tells her daughter, watch for, uh, and it sounds all like alike, watch for kiso, kaso, kaso. And it's three different words. One means the fork, the other means the wallet, and the third means anger, which means watch for three things. If a person is angry, uh, even he's super nice with you, but he suddenly bursts in anger towards somebody, uh, toward a waiter or waitress uh, or, or anybody else, watch for it because this is bad news. Today he's so bursting against somebody, tomorrow he will burst against you. The wallet, the, the, no, the, the fork, if he eats like a pig, if he, he's sloppy and he doesn't know how to keep himself in order, that's bad news also. And finally, Kaso, uh, the wallet, if he's stingy, run away from him. He's stingy now, he will be always stingy. So. It's, it's a, quite an affliction. There are different reasons uh, for stimulus, and it's important not to, not to confuse it with uh, somebody who is frugal. It's not bad. A person may have a, a goal, a person knows his her intentions, what they want to accomplish, what they want to buy, let's say they're saving money to buy uh, a car that they want, or to build, to build a house. And they, they don't want to be wasteful. They, they don't want to buy three of something when they need two. Uh, they don't want to buy food, too much food, because some of it gets wasted and thrown out. So that's being frugal. It's a reasonable choice. It's a conscious choice that a person makes. Stinginess is kind of uh, a way of living. A person can be stingy not only with money, but stingy with giving of oneself, stingy with acknowledging someone's success, stingy with praising somebody. So, so what are the reasons for stinginess? Number one, of course, of course is lack of faith. Uh, what what comes to my mind actually is uh, a story from the Bible when the Hebrews went through the desert and they were given manna. Remember, there was no food and manna would fall from the sky. Uh, and you can look at it as an uh, as a um, literal event uh, that some kind of wind was bringing uh, grain uh, that was falling, or you can look at 
it as, as a metaphor. It doesn't matter. But the idea was quite interesting that people were supposed to uh, collect this manna only for the day uh, that they were going through, because they, the manna would fall in the morning. And that was to, for them to demonstrate uh, that they have faith that tomorrow they will get again. And they were told to collect only for one day. And in fact, if somebody took more than for one day, the worms would appear, uh, would, would be in this manna. So the idea was not to grab, not to, to hold, and to have faith that they will get when they need it. Actually, the even better example uh, the, in, in a gospel, I believe it's in the Gospel of John, there is a story, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and there are only few breads and few fishes, and there was a multitude of people. And pe the, the, one of the students of Jesus is asking, how will we feed all these people? But Jesus is not concerned. He doesn't go, Jesus, what will I do? <laughs> you know, people will be starving. No, he simply takes out uh, the bag and breaks it in half and gives it to another person, breaks the fish and gives it to another person. And as people begin to break, the miracle happens. As they share, the more they share, the more there is, there is food and nobody is hungry. So that's a, a beautiful metaphor also um, to, to tell, don't hold back, don't be afraid. Give of yourself, give of what you have, and it will multiply. You will not, by giving, you will not, uh, you will not create poverty. You only create wealth. Wealth with feelings, if you give love, love only multiplies. It's just like fire. When you, when you light the fire, um, and then you take another, let's say, piece of wood or a match, and you light the fire from that fire, there is not less of fire, there is more. The same thing with love. When you give love, love does not disappear, suddenly you don't have it, it multiplies. So, uh, stinginess is, a, is a, sometimes a consequence also of trauma, and it's not, again, it's not a conscious decision. Uh, it's almost like fear of not having. For example, I know uh, that when my grandmother died, uh, and I probably doesn't qualify as stinginess, but when my grandmother died, and I told you what she went through, uh, and through starvation in the camp during the World War II, uh, so when she died, uh, my mother and her sisters found pieces of dry bread under her mattress. So I don't know even if it's stinginess, it's more kind of a trauma. Uh, but, but there are probably people who, as a result of trauma, hold back and it's a kind of survival instinct or impulse. Nevertheless, it's still a problem. 
So we need to see if we can address it because it is a problem. Sometimes stinginess is a result of education. Uh, parents are, are stingy and hold back and threaten the child with uh, not, not having. And then the child grows up, it's like imprinted in the child's mind and the child is an adult and continues the story. But I also saw people doing the opposite. The, the parents were stingy and the, and the child says, no, when they grow up, I'm not going to be like my parents. So it's still everything all patterns, psychological patterns, are still subject to one thing, to will. Excuse me, I will sip my ginger tea. Yes, through act of will and commitment, you can change any impulse, even if it's deeply ingrained. So, uh, also there is another possibility. Your students can come from past life, even if a person wasn't starving in this life or wasn't living in poverty or not having in lack of, uh, if they hold on to things uh, and if you try to take them away, they go into a state of anxiety. And I've seen this with a couple of children over the years where they just wanted to hoard things. And if you try to to ask them or take from something uh, or take away, they, they go into screaming. Uh, and that could be something coming from, from the past experience. I think on this show, I told you when I was speaking about eating problems, I believe I told you the story where I, and I didn't do past life regression with this person, but this person was constantly afraid that there will be no food. In fact, <clears throat> this it was a woman who was severely overweight. And whenever she would leave home, she would absolutely need to be sure that where they go, there is food. Uh, and finally, I don't know, don't know how she learned about my work. And I started uh, working with her and I gave her an imagery exercise because she was eating like large portions. And I asked her in, in my office to eat something. And she always had something in her, in her bag. And I asked her to close her eyes and imagine that she's traveling with her food inside. Again, it was like intuitive impulse on my side, on my part, to see what happens. And first she saw what, what literally she probably consciously thought she could see, and that is food, her stomach from inside, and then suddenly it was dark, and she reported that she heard a voice, I'm hungry. And so I asked her to continue going, and, and she went through the dark, and she came into a cave, and in the cave, somebody was cemented, meaning in, in that cave, there was another little cave, like in an indentation, and the bars were built in, cemented in, and there was a young man who was crying and saying, please give me food, I'm starving. 
and you know I encouraged Ho to release this this man and allow him to ascend to where he belongs and that was the exercise and it was a I remember it, there was a significant change in her relationship with food after this experience now I never even asked and was it was not in, in important for the sake of of our um, work which means she didn't come to do intellectual inquiries uh, into her past lives uh, but she came to receive help to change her relationship with food so I never even explored uh, what was actually happening in her mind whether it was uh, a metaphorical image that she saw or it was actually past life recollection because we know in the past one of the ways people were killed is they would be in in fact uh, cemented into a place where there would be no food and water and they would die actually I read a book about this one time years ago so because it wasn't important whether it was meta metaphorical or literal the, the important part is that once she connected with that starving part of herself and released it she was doing better but let's go back so that's as a result of something like this a person would be stingy for example this woman and again we never discussed it but possibly if somebody would ask her some for food possibly she would not want to share she would hoard food and possessions because there is there was this unconscious uh, imprint it's not enough so that's a result of a trauma uh, Dalai Lama was once asked what surprises you about people most and he said what surprises me is that they live as if they never die and when they are dying they feel like as if they never lived meaning that my understanding is that that what surprises him is how people are wasteful with their life that they live uh, saving thinking that they have to um, be cautious about life the kind of living not full life uh, as if like they they will live forever you know have a chance to explore that possibility they will have a chance to go to that place that they were dreaming uh, to go to or that they will be able to enjoy uh, this garden that they're hoping to one day to, to grow and yet they never do it because they have to work and save and so as if they know that they will live forever but no they may be dead tomorrow so they're delaying living fully um, and that's what I think uh, kind of surprises Dalai Lama that they live that people live in this limited way I, I assume I don't know his his personal life but I assume he lives much more in the moment now the question is how do you 
how do you change? Well, you're already ahead of the game if you hear me and, and you say, yeah, I am stingy. I am stingy. So, okay. You can work on it. Make, it. make a decision. All you need is to make a commitment. And with time and commitment, you will be able to change. But for that, you need to pause. All, the, all changes can happen if you learn to pause. Not to act, but pause. When something comes in your life where you have to make a decision about giving or not giving, spending or not spending. You already, if you did, you already admitted to yourself that you are dealing with stinginess. So before you act, you may get the feeling you need to ask yourself a question. Is if I share, if I give, if I spend, how will it change my life? And will it change my life? Will it deprive me of things? What will it take away from me? And then also ask yourself, what is if I give, if I share? What is the worst thing that can happen? And then you will be able to, to make a decision. A willful decision because people hold hold on to things because that question is not answered in their mind it's it's a habitual it's an impulse <gasps> no no i can i cannot release i cannot let go but if you actually ask what's the worst thing that will happen you may find you will answer nothing will happen it's not terrible i may be i may lose this, you know, 1% of my income or, or 1% of whatever, or maybe even 10%. You will be able in many cases in many, I'm not saying in all, but in many cases, you will be able to make an assessment and make a conscious decision to let go and not to hold back. That's all. If you decide, Go ahead uh, and and practice. I, before I go to talking about wastefulness, if you have a question regarding stinginess or you have a comment, uh, please you can call now. I give you the telephone number. I will gladly take your phone call. Uh, if not, we'll go to wastefulness. Okay, no phone calls. Uh, so, wastefulness. Well, you know, our culture is a is a culture a throwaway culture. In fact, you know, whole industry is geared toward you buying things and throw them throwing them away. Uh, in fact, I I cannot I don't remember even who actually told me, but somebody. Somebody not so long ago told me that they, some company, some uh, company that makes jeans, 
uh, had a whole department where they would study how to make genes not so durable. <laughs> not to make them durable, but make them not durable. Because otherwise, how can you sell uh, more uh, genes? And the, the same with, with many other things. Uh, some suggest, and I don't know uh, how true it is, but I noticed, like, for example, with electronics, after a while, as if they're programmed, after like five, six years, they stop working the way they used to. Why would it, they would stop? The same thing, this, the computer that I'm using, it's been with me, the uh, uh, Apple computer, with me for six, seven years. And I think I changed computers pretty much every six, seven years because they don't function the same way before than before. Why? Uh, possibly it's true that they are programmed to fail so that economy would be moving on. So we are, um, we are in a way programmed to, do, to be wasteful. I have here a little statistics. America is 4.5. Two five, like four and a quarter percent of the world's population, but we are responsible for twelve percent of all planet's trash. So we are incredibly wasteful. We produce two hundred fifty-four million tons of waste every year. Uh, four point four pounds per a person per a day. That's how much we're wasting. We're wasting water, wasting food. We're wasting someone else's work when we keep throwing out things and to buy a new thing. I know somebody who is a liberal Democrat and pro nature against wastefulness against um, destroying our earth, of course, for uh, green, green, whatever deal and so on. And there were, she found a little hole on her sack. And I say, so are you going to sew it up? And she said, yeah, she said, it, I, it would be nice to do, but it's so much easier to, to buy new. Here is your answer, you know, because you're not willing. You know, all good old times, I have. I have a little kit with thread and needles, and I have a little, if I have a little hole, like I had a little hole in one of my sweaters uh, under the armpit, and I just patched it up. So, but people are wasteful. People are throwing things away. And somewhere in the world, there is not enough food, there is not enough water. There is a wonderful, by the way, I want to share with you, there is a wonderful organization that I choose to support. So I send money every month. Uh, and it's called Charity Water. Uh, and it's, uh, you can go on the internet and, and find this uh, organization. And it was organized by a young man. He has a wonderful video during which he tells his story. And it was, he had a, I, I believe he owned a bar 
and um, he was using drugs and finally he got so tired of this life he decided to take some time and he left a manager running his bar oh a nightclub yeah nightclub and he went to travel for a few months and he went to India and he discovered there were so many uh, communities that don't have clean water then he went to Africa and he started this organization charity water and now by now I believe they dug over a thousand wells big wells that produce water for uh, communities and it's in fact every month I receive a report and it's so beautiful it's so beautiful he transformed his own life and the lives of so many people um, so that's that's I think a beautiful thing to do to learn how to not waste but to to be accountable for for what we do to be responsible because you know not to be a hypocrite like this woman I mentioned or hypocrites who say uh, we need there is there is uh, what is it global warming we have to protect the environment and then they fly what they call private they fly their own jets so how can you talk about it when if you fly a jet on your own your, your flight uses creates as much pollution as, as a lifetime driver creates driving a car so in it that's your one flight back and forth you know so that's hypocrisy uh, I, I found some interesting here note I made uh, here it is I asked a wise man tell me please in which field could I make a great career he said be a good human being there is a lot of opportunity in this area and very little competition I think it's very cute and I think that's that's being a good human being is caring about the planet caring about the person next to you and not being wasteful and but basically caring caring you know psychology teaches uh, I heard a number of psychologists uh, repeat you cannot you cannot be loving toward other people uh, until you love yourself so you have to learn to love yourself repeat repeat to yourself this mantra I love myself I love myself give yourself things I I I kind of disagree I think one can be loving period and aspire to be loving this is it to act in a loving way may just make a commitment to be loving it doesn't matter to toward who to any anything and ev any everything what first understand what it is to be loving and then act in a loving way toward everything and everything and everyone 
self, yes. Uh, in the Bible it's written, love thy neighbor as thyself. But who is your neighbor when you're by yourself? Yourself. So you need to uh, cultivate this loving attitude, period. When it's you, to, toward yourself, be loving toward yourself, toward others, toward enemies, toward friends, toward animals and trees and objects. That's it. What, what, how can you love your enemies? Like some say, well, be loving toward your enemies. Doesn't mean uh, that you have to befriend them. You know, J John Kennedy said, uh, forgive those who hurt you, but don't forget their names. You don't have to uh, hate them. You don't have to be their friend. You need to understand, you will stop resenting them and start acting in a loving way if you forgive them, because they do, that's what they do. That's who they are. They cannot be any other way. Most people who are not kind, they're not happy campers. They're not in a good place in life. So you'd need to understand that if you were like them, if you grew up in their environment, had their gen genetic code, you would be like, you would act like them. So possibly they're invalids. That's what I said to somebody who, who was very angry at her father because her father uh, was not a loving person, very punitive and very critical. And I asked her, you know, is he, do you know him as being a happy person? She said, no, he's a miserable person. So I say with this. So look at this. He's not a happy person. He does not know how to be a happy person. If you would see that, you know, your father has no legs, you would feel sorry for him but he has no way to enjoy life. You, you have, he has uh, daughters, he has grandchildren, and yet he's still a miserable person. Who is a, he's an invalid. So have compassion. If not love, have compassion for this kind of a person. But in order to change that impulse from being angry to being loving, one needs something that is so important. One needs to slow down. Slow down. Because our reactions are always fast. We don't think. We, we react emotionally uh, or through action. But if you learn to slow down, in fact, one of the practices is just walk deliberately slower than you normally walk. When you pick up a teacup, and if you remember that you are in practice, let's say you decide, today I'm practicing uh, to be loving. So, but you start by, remember, this. your first assignment is to be, to pause, to do, to do things slowly. Because when you do things slowly, then you have time to ask, let's say something happened, and, and it's rising inside of you, you want to burst with anger, you, then you need to ask yourself, is that who I want to be? 
what would be the best, the most loving way to act toward such and such person, animal, friend, enemy, it doesn't matter. Why would be a loving way? Because what happens if somebody is not good to you? You think that they're not good to you, only to you? No, this is their way. It has nothing to do with you. Most of the time, again, you may have done something that is not right. But the way they treat you, the way they treat you is not telling you about you, but telling you about them. You heard me probably many times on this show saying, don't make someone's story your story. If somebody is angry, somebody is disrespectful, it's their story. It's how they deal with people. But the moment you say, how dare he? Now it becomes your story. You want him to be different. No. You don't need to participate. You can get up and walk away. And if this is your boss at work, you listen and you acknowledge. This is him. This is her. And that's how she or he is. That's their way. They're probably with other people or with, at home with their relatives. They're the same way. The same thing. It doesn't matter. It's your own self or someone else. You are reinforcing the muscle of kindness or the muscle of intolerance, the muscle of judgment, the muscle of anger. How does the muscle become strong? by doing something over and over again, exposing it to stress, giving, working with weights. You repeat over and over again, and the muscle becomes strong. So you breathe life into anger and making it of who you are by getting angry over and over. Or you breathe life into being intolerant and judgment, or you breathe life into being kind, whatever you repeat over and over again, because becomes who you are. That's, you know, you heard me probably quote uh, Chinese, the Chinese proverb, watch your thoughts, because everything starts with the way you think. Watch your thoughts, they become your feelings. Watch your feelings, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character, it becomes your destiny. So from such small thing as a thought, your whole life depends. And but in order to monitor your thoughts, you need to slow down. And while our thoughts are constantly coming, I told you, with the speed of one one hundred fiftieth of a second, then you will say, I'm screwed and boom. How can I watch my thoughts? You can. You don't have control over the thought coming, but you have control over what you do with that thought once it comes. Meaning a thought comes, some negative thoughts, thought, judgment, whether it's st about stingy, being stingy or wasteful or being angry, once you catch yourself, 
like you think of someone. Why does he do this? Why is she doing this? That's already judgment. Why? It's not your business. They are who they are. But the moment you have that thought, you say, oops, that's all. That's all you need to say, oops, and let it go. Let it go to not pass the judgment. Unless a person asks you a question, how can I change? How can I become better? No, they're not asking you, leave them alone. And again, you don't have to associate with them if it's possible, if it's not a co-worker or your boss. You don't have to, but you don't have to judge them. Anyway, that's, that's all for stinginess and wastefulness. Uh, if anybody wants to call now, is it's the right time to call. We still have 15 minutes. Uh, if you have questions or comments, uh, otherwise I will go to another subject. No calls, no calls. Anybody is there? <laughs> uh, anyway, so let me let me think. Yes, somebody else wrote to me uh, a, a, an email asking me to talk about several subjects, and one of them was a subject of cardiovascular health. So, uh, in fact, it was a woman and she asks about cardiovascular health and something else. Yeah, right now I don't recall, but cardiovascular health I do remember. So, I will talk about it now. In fact, I used to teach a whole course called Healing Your Heart with mind-body integrative therapy. And it was, I believe, a nine-week course. So, uh, I can talk to you about this because it's the most researched and doc well-documented subject. Uh, the cardiovascular well or ill-being. But the, the data of this research didn't change the world. I would think that it would change, but it didn't. I would think that the research that is available uh, would change entirely the whole field of, of cardiovascular health. Some universities started teaching um, some ideas that, that uh, were um, promoted by Dean Ornish. If you remember, uh, I invited actually Dean Ornish uh, on my show. He was a guest maybe nine months ago, somewhere in the middle, not, yeah, in the middle of last year, 2021, 22. Uh, and Dean Ornish if you remember, did this incredible project, you know, um, in the past, before Dean Ornish, before 35 years ago, the belief was that uh, 
arteriosclerosis, or what they call commonly hardening of the arteries, is irreversible and incurable. People could be supported by medication, but you could not reverse hardening of the arteries. And Dean Ornish proved that it was possible. Uh, he put people on a diet that is offered them a different nutritional uh, plan from, from what they were eating before, encouraged them to do a series of exercises, physical exercises, and asked them to do meditation. He uh, worked with a, a large group of people, and he demonstrated that their arteriosclerosis was reversed. So there were significant improvements within, I don't remember, the study was done, I think, 35 years ago. But he demonstrated there was a significant improvement almost in every person in the study. And since then, he did make his way into some universities in, in, where they teach in medical schools um, his, his protocol. But most, most of the schools do not teach uh, these ideas, because why? Because then you cannot, you cannot sell medication. Um, the Random House Dictionary of English Language has 44 entries for the word heart. heart. Uh, one is that it's a muscular organ which by rhythmic contractions and relaxation keeps blood circulating throughout the body. But then another entry is to break one's heart. And that's to cause disappointment or sorrow in someone. Uh, another entry is to take something too hard, meaning to be deeply affected. Another entry, having a heavy heart, being troubled. But notice, only one of them, and, and on and on, there are many, but they're all metaphorical. Uh, the only one says that it's a, like William Harvey described in the 17th century, that it's a pump, pumping blood throughout the body. But most of, not all other definitions of the heart have connection with people's feelings. So, and we discovered what William Harvey said in 17th century is not entirely true, that it's only a pump. In fact, there was a study done I believe in 1972, and if you go on the internet, if you want to check, um, you type Dr. J. And welfare. The study was done in 1972. The study of 1972, Dr. Jenkins. So, he conducted a study of the factors that increase the risk of getting a heart attack before the age of 50. And at that time, they already knew that such factors as certain forms of diabetes, high blood pressure, um, being overweight, um, 
where the, the risks that increase the risk of getting a heart attack, the, the factors. But to his amazement, Dr. Jenkins discovered that out, not out of 950 people who had heart attacks, uh, 85% of people did not have those factors, which means they were not obese, they did not have high blood pressure, um, they didn't have diabetes. So he was puzzled and so he asked all these people to answer extensive questionnaires to see if there was some, there were some character traits or some circumstances of that contributed to heart attacks. And he indeed discovered one common thing among all these people. Everything else was different between them. There was one thing that was common and that is they all hate their jobs. They all hated their job. So, and when the study was published, another doctor, Dr. Mahler from the National Institute of Health, remember it was 1972, PCs only came in on the market. Dr. Mahler did a study on the distribution of heart attacks on different days of the week. And he discovered that more people have heart attacks on one particular day. And you're probably guessing what it was. Yes, indeed, it was Monday. In fact, Monday from seven to nine, which means, you know, uh, I would rather be dead than go to work. So, so they discovered that heart is affected by us liking or disliking intensely something over a long period of time. And indeed, we know also about love or uh, strong feelings that people have uh, um, when somebody dies. We know that studies from many uh, universities from around the world demonstrated that a surviving spouse has twice as high risk of getting a heart attack than an average person, which means a person, again, is heartbroken. So it's not by a chance we have this this uh, language. The language is really representing or expressing the sentiment of the society. That's how language in, evolves. So, so we are now discovering that the heart is the seat of love, or lack of it, of liking or disliking. So there, are, oh, I, I see there is. Uh, it's now it's two fifty-five. We have to. We have to wrap up. Yeah, there, there are many other studies and I want to tell you about it, them. I, I will have to do it next, during the next show. But there are many other studies that demonstrate indeed that uh, this connection between how we feel and our attitudes, the attitude that we have toward life, how they affect our cardiovascular health. And I will talk next week about other studies, and then I will offer you some exercises. If you have high blood pressure, if you have some cardiovascular problems, as I said, I, I taught, I believe, nine-week course, but I will offer you some mental exercises from that course. So, but do feel free, please, to write to me, write to me an email. Uh, and if you want me to discuss some 
some particular cases, I share with you some or, uh, stories from practice, or if you want to share your experiences with dealing with cardiovascular problems, please feel free to write to me. Please do. Uh, and I will, again, if you have a question, I will gladly uh, try to answer it. I don't know in advance if I will be able, but I surely will do my best. Anyway, I, it's time for me to say uh, goodbye to you. Uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you for being with me today. I'm looking forward to having your attention next week. Um, be happy and peace to all who want to live in peace.